Welcome everyone to today's devotion. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, which means we are officially um, halfway through uh, the book of uh, 2 Corinthians. So again, the, the New Testament is much smaller than, than what we, we may otherwise realize. In this chapter, uh, Paul is uh, writing again to the Corinthians about uh, some of the hurt he's received from them. He references a previous letter. We've talked about that in some detail. And, and he reminds us of what he said in chapter 1, that God is the God of all comfort. So uh, we looked at verse 1 yesterday because verse 1 is actually tied to the conclusion of chapter 6. So let's start in verse 2. He says, Make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. Now, I, I, I read that, and I, just, I think it's worth pausing and meditating upon that. Is that a statement that any of us can say about ourselves? We have wronged no one, we've corrupted no one, we've taken advantage of no one. Nothing apart from a consistent pursuit of godliness can explain how that is even possible. Our highest, highest aim is not to get ahead, but to be faithful to Christ and to be righteous in Him. So Paul can brag, essentially, and say he's wronged no one, corrupted no one, taken advantage of no one. Verse 3, I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are, uh, you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I, have, I am overflowing with joy. So you get a sense here that Paul has received false accusation against himself from the Corinthians, or at least from those seeking to lead them astray. And Paul is saying here, look, all of these things are false and inaccurate. I've not wronged anybody. I haven't corrupted anyone. I haven't done any of that sort of stuff. And, and I say that not in condemnation, but as a reminder of my deep and great love for you. So you see that, that Paul speaks of boldness, being boldness towards them, is an act of love. We live in an age where confrontation is is evil, right? You you don't confront people because that is that that that, that is wrong. But in the New Testament, uh, confronting someone who is in the clear wrong is an act of love, because you don't want them to 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 continue down this this dangerous path. So verse five, he says, for even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn fighting without and fear within. So again, we, we see that Paul is returning to this theme of suffering, that um, he continues to show that his perseverance through suffering is demonstrative of his faithfulness as an apostle. So whatever the false teachers may be saying of, of Paul, he points to his sufferings as a badge of honor. He has endured these things for the sake of the churches and for the glory of God. One can almost hear the false teachers say, as many say today, that suffering uh, proves that he is in disobedience or that God has turned against them or something like that. We get hints of this throughout the Bible. Uh, so for example, Job's friends will accuse him saying that, well, because you're suffering, it's because God is mad at you. And Job struggles to say, well, what is it have I, have I done? Um, Jesus asks regarding the man born blind, uh, or he's asked by the disciples, who sinned, this man or his parents? The assumption is, is that when you see suffering, 
when you see evil, it is caused by personal sin. Although oftentimes that is the case, it's not always the case. Our sin has a ripple effect and affects ourselves, our home, our family, our workspace, our community, and so on and so forth. So it's important that, that, that we pursue righteousness for the good and sake of others. But Paul is reminding us that suffering doesn't prove that God is angry at us, but is a reminder of the comfort we have in the God of all comforts. So Paul points to his suffering as, as a proof of his faithfulness, not contradictory to it. So he comes into Macedonia, and, and his, their bodies are restless because they have uh, fighting without, so they've been threatened and persecuted, and then there's the fears within. I, I love the vulnerability of Paul here. Verse 6, But God, who comforts the downcast, comfort us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he is comforted, that he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still the more. Now, this plays right into what he said in chapter 1. That God comforts us amid our suffering and sorrow so that we can comfort others when they suffer. And Paul's saying, I've been a beneficiary of that. God comforted me not merely by his presence, but through the saints. He names Titus in particular, who, who had ministered there in Corinth at the end of this chapter, particularly uh, starting in verse uh, uh, 13, going to the end of the chapter there in verse 16. Paul gives us some details about the uh, Titus ministry there. He said, look, what happened was, while I was in Macedonia and suffering greatly, and, and there was great fear in my own heart, Titus arrives by the appointed providential time of God, and he comforts me by his very presence, by his grace and his mercy, and, um, and, and from what it is that he, tell, he told me about you. He said that you mourned for me, you prayed for me, you were broken for me, and, and you've lifted me up. He said that, that rem remember that your ministry to me is of vital importance as it is my ministry to you. Now, I, I think that's worth pausing upon, don't you think? What if every member of the local church understood that they are a minister? It doesn't mean they need to occupy a pulpit or write a book, or, or, or spend a few years studying at seminary. What it does mean is to understand that, that I can either be a blessing to others and minister to their needs, and understand that we, we are spiritual beings, and, and that there, there's a role that I play in, in being a faithful minister to others, or we can just discount all of that and constantly try to take from others. But Paul sees that as I seek to minister to you, even from afar, you are ministering to me, sometimes from afar through your prayers and concern, but also through sending to me people like Titus. Look, you will not strive or endure the Christian life alone. This is a real challenge with COVID. One of my fears is that many people who are in the habit of regular worship are now out of that habit likely because of, of, of uh, the lack of certainty we have with being out in public and all that sort of stuff. And so then we start to convince ourselves that we don't need the fellowship of other believers in order to be a thriving Christian. And that is false. 
We need one another. But more than that, what we need within a church is to minister to one another. Are you as a church member checking on other members? Are you as a friend or a family member, a coworker, a neighbor, a stranger, whatever, are you, do you see yourself as a minister to others and thus you spend your day seeking to make other people's lives better? Whether it be through, through encouragement or comfort or blessing or service, whatever it might be. Paul demonstrates that for us, doesn't he? That, that, that Titus comes and he is a minister to me even though I'm the one that has discipled him. How vitally important is that work? And uh, he says there, verse 8, even if I made you grieve with my letter, it's likely not a reference to 1 Corinthians, but to, to this hard letter he references, the one in between what we call 1 and 2 Corinthians. I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a, little, for a while. He, this is the tension of like every parent, isn't it? Uh, that, that you regret that maybe you have to discipline your kids? But you don't regret that you had to discipline your kids, right? That tension that is within our hearts is a natural tension. Paul says, look, part of me regrets I had to send that letter because I know it was harsh and it was bold and, and it, it grieved you. At the same time, I don't regret it because I see that it has borne fruit in your soul. And that, that, that is the tension of every pastor, every parent, anyone in, in a, a social or spiritual role. As it is, verse 9, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Now, what he is starting to introduce here, particularly in verse 9 and verse 10, is this concept of godly uh, grief and worldly grief. So notice what he says there in verse 10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And we don't have time to go into all the specifics. I've, I've done this uh, in other places at, at East Frankfurt in various sermons and studies and devotions and stuff. Um, but but um, it may be worth meditating on your own. What does godly grief mean? What does it look like? What does it produce? What does worldly repentance and grief mean? What does it produce? What does it look like? But, but godly grief is one where uh, my sin is laid on the table and Christ's blood covers it. So, so it is honesty about who I am, what I've done, right, and the direction my life is going, and, and the judgment that awaits me. It is honesty about the self. And, and our only hope is Christ. So he says here that godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. And so, so that grief uh, leads me to the cross. Worldly grief does, does, does the opposite. One of the things that worldly grief today does is, is it produces guilt and shame and everything else, but then we want to lay that guilt and shame, not on my own actions, but on the actions of others. I'm a victim. I'm a victim because of my gender, my race, my economics, my, my, my position in the culture, my, my upbringing, my whatever it, it might be. I'm a victim. And so all this guilt and shame I feel is not my fault. It's the system's fault. It's the government's fault. It's my family's fault. It's my siblings' fault. 
It's my boss's fault. It's my, it's my public education's fault. It's my spouse's fault. It's my children's fault. It's, it's the police's fault. It's, it's whatever it might be. So worldly sorrow looks inside for the answer with outside being the problem. Godly sorrow shows us the problem lies within and the answer lies outside of me, namely in Christ, his death and resurrection. This is, this is an important idea that, that we really need to grasp. So Paul says, yes, I, I do regret I had to, had to write that letter, but I don't regret that it stirred in your heart godly sorrow which produces repentance and salvation. And, and I think you and I would, would, would spend our time well in lockdown if we asked ourselves, do I demonstrate godly sorrow or worldly sorrow? And if it's not godly sorrow, may chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians stir that within us so that we can have proper repentance that produces the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Lord willing, we'll see you guys here.